The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Slade Cleaves. Slade's a songwriter. He's one of my favorite songwriters, one of my favorite living songwriters, and has been since I was driving on Sunset Boulevard, for real, in 2000, and the song came on the radio, and uh, it's happened to be about five times in my life, I drove right to the record store. There still were record stores then, and there was this one record store in LA that had these Americana records. I think it was called like Hear Music or something. It was some strange store, and I, I remember going in and saying, there's this thing, and I, you, you know, your name is so strange, Slade, that uh, I was like, I think his name is, I couldn't figure it out. And I got this record, and I listened to it uh, over and over and over again. Um, and uh, ever since then, I, I shortly thereafter got in touch with Slade, and we've sort of known each other from afar for a while. Um, but I thought it would be great because some of you will know his music, but many of you won't. And I, I thought it might be great to just start with a song by, by Slade so that you have some context for what, what we're talking about. Maybe I'll get him to play one at the end, too. Um, hey, Slade, will you play this song, Cry? I can do that. All right, great. Then we'll talk about it. You love like a diamond, like a twinkling star, but it's a whole lot of heartache to get to where we are. Because every man is a myth. Every woman a dream Watch your little heart get crushed When the truth gets in between Every boy is a born to sorrow Your blue sky turns gray Everything you love will be taken away Cry for your mama Cry for your dad Cry for everything you know they never had Lying in the bed you made Ah, but you were so young Say a prayer, put your head down Gonna prove your mama wrong There's no poison like a dream When it all comes undone don't you know that in the end you're not fooling anyone? Every bond is a bond of sorrow. Every blue sky fades to gray. Everything you love will be taken away. Cry for your mama. Cry for your dad. Cry for everything you know they never had. Go out, you know you can't count on anyone. But 
Between a dream and a lie Between hope and what's real After so many years of let's work it out You think there'd be some kind of a deal Cry for your mama Cry for your dad Cry for everything you know they never had Cry for your mama Cry for your dad Cry for everything you know they never had The love they never had Wow. Dude, every time I hear that song, uh, it kills me. I, I, I remember, I remember seeing you play that song live shortly after you wrote it at some place in New York. And I, I remember you, you saying something about that song being very hard earned to you. Like you knew you'd done something. Yeah. It felt different than a lot of other songs. Uh, it felt, uh, I just felt more modern. It felt less kind of folky. Most of my stuff is kind of folky songwriter stuff. Uh, folky, you know, workplace disaster songs and stuff, but it's more of a pop song. I remember, I remember trying to, I was trying to write a U2 song, you know, and that's, there's like three dif- distinct parts to it. It's not like verse, chorus, folk song, you know, it's just there's like a B section. Yeah. 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 But also, I mean, lyrically, I mean, it's funny you're trying to write a pop song. It's literally the darkest lyric of almost any song. <laughs> Going for the feel-good hit of the yeah. summer there. I mean, it's yeah. darker than like Bayes. I mean, it's so dark. Like, uh, as you know, Amy, my wife, Amy Cobbleman, the novelist. I mean, she basically – her this incredibly dark and beautiful novel she wrote basically ends with a line from that song. And then she put the lyric of the song in the fr- like the frontest piece of the thing. And a bu- there are a bunch of these lines that I, I wanted to ask you about. And I, I don't – you know, I want to talk about your life and your story and how you got here. But, but I also want to talk about worldview a little bit, particularly in that you, you know, you wrote that song. You'd, you'd think, you know, that you think there'd be some kind of a deal. Um, and you know, you wrote that song six or seven, seven years ago. Have, have you found any more cause for, for optimism in the world? <laughs> um, and you can say no. <laughs> well, I was just talking to someone about this about one of the uh, songs on the new album coming out soon. And that's a pretty pessimistic song called The Drunken Barber's Hand. And I wrote it a year ago, and it's a little bit political, a little bit about the state of the world. And and I, I had to admit that I'm a little more optimistic this month than I was a few months ago, just because of the way elections have been going. You know, it could have gone... Could have gone all one way. It looked like the whole world was oh, going one Pen, way. Oh, at least Le Pen lost. Yeah, and then Netherlands as well. Yeah. So that gives me hope that that maybe the tide has turned and we're realizing, you know, we're not we're not going to go down that road again that we did in the 1930s. Let's let's not go there. Yeah, but I was thinking about um, like your songs are often about the distance between hopes and reality. Many of them, especially over the first bunch of albums, were about the gulf between our dreams and what we can actually grab. And there's a a lot of pragmatism that that runs through them. Distinct. In, in your songs, um, there's a 
a pragmatic look at the circumstance we're actually in, even as we may have these higher uh, aspirations. And I'm I'm wondering and about um, whether that 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 it was a conscious choice you made to try to draw things sort of as they are, not as you wished that they'd be. Well, that's a beautiful question, and and I think it it speaks to uh, my upbringing a little bit, or the town I grew up in. You know, my parents grew up in Darien, Connecticut. My grandfathers took the train in New York City. Uh, and my parents are a little older than boomers. They were born in 1940. So they kind of saw that corporate, uh, corporate suburban madmen kind of, you know, lifestyle. And they wanted to escape from it. And they saw that, you know, hard charging kind of be, you know, get the job at the corporation kind of lifestyle. And they rebelled against that and they moved their young family to this this little town in Maine. My father had gone to school at Bowdoin in Maine and kind of fell in love with it. So uh, in 1970, he moved the family to this town, South Berwick, Maine. And it's a place that uh, where uh, there are limits on people. It's a place of dairy farmers, and uh, there was a shoe factory there that some of my, my classmates' parents worked at. Um, uh, so there was a real distinct sense that... Uh, you know, you can't do whatever you want if you live in a town like South Brook, Maine. You know, right. there's limits. And, and so I, I think that was infused, that was infused in me from an early age that some people are stuck here, you know, and stuff, and it takes a lot to get out. But I know you grew up listening to Bruce and mm. famously you and Rod Picot, who was like your best friend mm. as, a, as a kid, who's another good songwriter, collaborator, friend of yours. Yeah. You know, like Rod posted a picture this year with Bruce uh, and, uh, he finally got to meet him and he told a story about you guys going to a concert and seeing him. And in Bruce, there were, was always, I mean, uh, until he wrote Tom Joad, that there was always this idea that it's a town full of losers and we're pulling out of here to win. And, but something artistically, something, and yeah, and you, you know, in your second album or the first properly released album, you had, you know, not going down, never going down again and all that. You had this sense of that possibility, but. But it seems you made a decision early to talk about the that the end of the road is as maybe even closer than the beginning. I don't know what you mean by that. Well, that Bruce talks about uh, the possibility of greatness right around the corner, and that's not a, a, a lie or a story most of your characters tell themselves. Hmm. Well, it, ironically, we kind of learned from Bruce almost everything. I mean, all. Of, when I'm talking about right. my first batch of songs, they're like ver my version of Bruce Springsteen yes. songs, pretty much. And they always have the little hope at the end of the. There's light at the end of the tunnel everywhere. There is hope. There's well, or, not in, uh, everything you love will be taken away. Not in the song <laughs> you just played. Well, maybe not that one. That came <laughs> no, later. No, I'm trying to, yeah. yeah, no, that came later. No, this because I was thinking about um, one good year, mm. which is my first favorite Slade Cleave song. Right, I heard "Broke Down," which is a song you and Rod wrote together. Then I heard one good year and there's that line, you know, chasing grace, but grace ain't so easily found. Mm. And that song, yeah, there's this, you know, uh, one band hand can bury a man, but a good one can turn him around. And I, I, I love that. And yes, in that there's this incredible hope. And obviously as a, the poker player in me really related oh, to that it. That hand, yeah, right. The, you know, and the <laughs> idea that, you know, a good one can, can, can turn it around. But I was thinking about how the, I wrote on this. I wrote a note to myself, like the first bunch of albums, there was this chasing grace, grace and swing as it was possible. But then you got to everything 
you know, everything you love is taken away. And um, I guess what I'm wondering about is, is there a third act to it? Are you, is it important to you to try to find that bit of redemption? Well, I think when I wrote the song Cry from the album, Everything You Love Will Be Taken Away, um, I was I was hitting my mid-40s and uh, I, I just had the realization that everything that had been Everything that I've been building my life towards, uh, career and relationship and wonderful relationship with Karen, my wife, and, and a career which is, you know, not big, but I'm supporting myself as a musician and that's awesome. You know, what could be better? Uh, friends, family, I still had all my siblings, my parents, we had a great dog, a cat. I mean, I just knew that every single one of those things, the rest of my life is going to be losing every one at a time. I just had that realization and that, that whole album, Every single song on that album is about losing something, whether it's a spouse or your innocence or your job or your marriage. Uh, just the only way out of that is to die young. Yeah, well, I think it's a, uh, I find it to be an incredibly beautiful album. I mean, I think you've made four pretty perfect albums and, uh, you know, particularly the run of, I mean, broke down into wishbones, into everything you love will be taken away is a, uh, three in a row that I, I never say this on the show, but everybody listening to this should go find those three albums and listen to them. They each have these in, incredible treasures in them. Um, and a lot of, a lot of laughter too, a lot of humor in particularly the earlier records. Not I a think. lot, but a little. <laughs> well, drinking day is pretty funny. Yeah. I mean, there's, <laughs> I think that there is stuff, but ha so how do you measure, um, you know, I know that that time when I first heard you was when a lot of people first heard you and it was a moment where your the sort of traditional commercial record business wasn't completely dead yet. There were radio stations that were playing the kind of music that you wrote and you had a measure of like almost traditional commercial success. How do you measure success now? I don't know. I'm on the eve of putting out the first album that I've ever, that I've put out by myself. My first self-released album since... I put a cassette out in 94, you know, so I had, I was on rounder records for about 10 years. And like you said, the, the industry was still there somewhat, you know, there were radio stations and local press and they'd talk about a record and play a record and people would go to borders and buy it. And that doesn't really happen that way anymore. Uh, but, um, I'm about to find out. <laughs> I'm about to find out. I have 1300 pounds of CDs in my barn at home and the record comes out in a couple of weeks. And I don't even know if people are going to buy CDs anymore. Are you putting it on Spotify and iTunes? Yeah. And vinyl, too, for the first time ever. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So, and, and so it's the, I mean, that's talking about whether you'll sell records, but I'm sort of asking about how you measure success. Cause look, you, you know, um, you, you and I, I, my dad was born in 1940. So you said your parents were born in 1940. Um, I think you might be a year older than me. Uh, 52. Right. So, okay. You're, yeah, you're a year older than I am. We were at the same college at the same time, though we didn't know one another <laughs> then. But I found that I measure, I've had to make a series of decisions over time about what it means to be a successful artist. And I've tried to not connect that too much to the way the work is received by a big amount of people. I'm lucky the thing I'm working on now, a lot of people are into, but like I've certainly gone through these other periods and to keep, I guess what I'm wondering is, what how, what do you say to yourself to keep going? Well, from day one, uh, it's a pretty easy equation for me. Is is in June of 1989, I'd been out of college for a couple of years with my philosophy degree, working some minimum wage jobs, uh, printing pictures in a dark room for four dollars an hour, 
and I quit that job and I, and I kind of couch surfed and lived in my car and drove around the East Coast a little bit, busking on the sidewalk and making a demo tape and trying to get gigs in clubs. And in, and in June of 89, I had enough work at clubs in Maine and New Hampshire that I made more in June than I had made it the previous year at my $4 an hour job working 40 hours a week. And I made more money. It was $600 a month, which was more than a 40 hour a week job. I made $600 a month just playing music. And it was like eight gigs or something like that, right. barroom gigs. And I thought, this is it, man. This is success. I'm making, I'm making a living as a musician. And that's, it's all been gravy since then. And so that's really like, um, as long as you're able to do it. Yeah. Does it have to do with whether you think the songs you're writing at a given time matter or good or well, say what you're hoping that they'll say? Oh yeah. Artistically, I want to feel like I'm doing the best work I can. And yeah, that's the second, I guess my first answer was a little facile, but the second prong of that is, People are responding to my music. They're telling me how much my music meant to them, you know, and that that happens every couple of days, you know, I'm on the tour, talk to people at shows or people email me or whatever through the website. They tell me stories like you told them about pulling over and buying the record or, or someone says, you know, one good year, you know, my brother died last year and it was the worst year of my life. And I heard that song and it, it pulled me through, you know, you hear that, that, that keeps it going for a long time. Oh, sure. You know? Yeah. Well, I'm sure you do hear it. I'm sure you do hear it frequently. I mean, that's the power that your music has. And by the same token, I'm, I find myself really maddeningly frustrated that more people don't know your stuff, you know? And, uh, because I think the songs have the capacity to like, uh, inspire and heal and, um, soothe and like, I, and I, you know, I have, as you know, like I went around for years and years just trying to get everyone I know to listen to your music and, um, my 45th birthday party, I invited you up and had you play for a big room of people. And I'm just wondering how it, how it hits you. Does it, if it's frustrating or if you've made peace with the fact that making this kind of music at this time in the world is difficult commercially. Yeah. You've said it all. It's, it's, it's frustrating when I think about it, but then, you know, when I realize that I am making a connection with a small amount of people and you got to wonder, you know, why, why is the, why is my connection so powerful and so true and and so real and so fulfilling, um, but so but such a small amount of people, and it's either you and my other fans are just weird, you know, <laughs> you you're special, <laughs> and you connect, you well, connect with a certain thing that most people don't connect with, or I haven't, you know, or I just don't have the I'm not uh, palatable palatable enough on a, on a broad basis or something to. To, to, to talk to the culture in general. It's, it's weird. You I know? think it's a question of timing. Yeah. Yeah. I think of that, you know, what my favorite record of the last few years was by Billy Harvey. Have you come across him? No. You got to write that down. Billy Harvey, um, a record called Dear Danger. I just listened to that over and over and over again, like a record, like I've never listened to anything in 10 or 15 years. Really? And that record, that would have been a smash hit in the seventies or eighties, you know, timing. It's just not what's cool right now. Yeah, I was thinking about Rodney Crowell just made this album. I don't know if you've heard it. Like I think it's called 1972 or something like that. I haven't that. heard the new one, no. That may be the the track and not the title of the album. Um, the album's all about when he first got to Nashville in 72 mm. and met Guy mm. and Skinny Dennis 
and that whole group of people. Um, he tells about throwing, meeting, meeting Willie Nelson. Willie's approaching 40 and I guess Rodney's 21 or something. He meets Willie and plays him a bad song <laughs> and Willie kind of tells him and then he goes and throws up in the bushes, Rodney, you know, but, but the song is all about possibility and like the open field in front of a young artist. I mean, it's really, and, and the album is about that too. And somehow it made me really sad the way that it's supposed to make you sad. And I, I started wondering about this idea of open field in front of you as an artist and that time of possibility. And then how, as an artist, you process the window closing. Yeah, that's part of getting older, right? I mean, I remember when Broke Down was happening, Broke Down was uh, a huge success for me. It went from, like to say, I went from total obscurity to relative obscurity. <laughs> that's overnight. a big, yeah, big move. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it, was, it was from going broke to paying off debt, basically. Broke Down. It was from playing to six people at a show to playing to 100 people at a show. Is from playing uh, six or ten cities to playing a hundred cities, so it was a big deal for me. Um, not a big deal in the cultural sense of, of the national culture. It's still just a tiny little drop in the bucket. Plus, Russell Crowe covered one of your songs. That's <laughs> that also pretty cool. At the same time, what yeah. happened? Yeah, but when that was happening, I had no idea if that was a path towards something huh. much bigger or whether that was the peak. And it turns out it was the peak commercially. I mean, I haven't sold that many records since 19, since 2000, broke down. And that, that partly because of the record business, but partly just because of my career. I mean, I, I, I got my niche with that album, and I've been clawing onto it with my fingernails ever since and just trying to yeah, hold I mean, on to it. It's a great album. It's interesting, though. You've made albums that are every bit as good, and that's what the vagaries part of this thing. That's the, you know, I, I heard your new album, and... There are a few songs on it that just knocked me out. As I told you, I listened to it a few times because the first time year, and I know it's not out yet, but people will hear it very soon. And a couple songs on it just took my breath away. And I, I was like, there, Slade's still going deep, man. He still cares enough to go deep. Well, yeah. I mean, if, if it doesn't, if it's, if it doesn't give me a thrill, then, you know, I'm not going to put anything out that I don't really love. I mean, that just, that came, that's been part of my MO all along. What do you think? I mean, in order to do that, what what do you, what do you think you um like have sacrificed uh, to dedicate yourself to songwriting, and has it been worth it? Hmm. Um. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I haven't sacrificed much. I don't have kids. I didn't raise a family. I don't. I don't know how people can have kids in a in a career in an artistic career, especially. It just amazes me. I just don't have the the creative capacity to do both. So there's that. Um. You know, my wife Karen has been a huge, huge part of my success just in, in keeping, keeping us alive while I was the starving artist, uh, but also working closely with me as part of the team now. It's a, it's a mom and pop store pretty much, me and Karen. Um, but you know, all I have to give up is, is some time every, uh, when it's time for a new record, I, I pack up some clothes and some food and I go off for three or four days and, and just don't, you know, turn off the phone and don't do chores. Just, just think like a writer. Just uh, watch movies and read books and and just write anything that comes into my mind. So, is that? Do you write your your you write your albums in three or four days usually? Well, no, I have to do three or four days, um, ten or twelve times a year. You know, three or four days once or twice a month. Twice a month. For so that's what you do. I'm really interested. In I mean, a lot of mm -hmm. people who listen to this are writers and who think they either. 
the time. Okay, I want to go like a little granular on how, mm. what your process is. I was expecting this. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no, so, well, you've listened to the podcast. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, what, what is that process? What does that really look like? Like you go, when you, when you go for a couple of days, like what is that? Uh, well, it's cyclical. It's like after I'm touring, you know, after the new record starts getting old, I realize, oh, geez, I need to start writing some new songs. So it's usually about a year or so after the record comes out. Um, and I'll start booking these three or four day getaways. And it used to be a, a friend's guest house or a hotel room that somebody bought for me or something. Uh, but now we have a guest house at our house in Austin. So I literally pack a suitcase and a cooler and walk down a flight of steps into really? the guest house. <laughs> and Karen brings me food once in a while, but we try not to communicate. And I just try to, you know, be like a hermit and just devote myself. And it's not like staring at a blank page and hammering out. It's just, it's mostly just changing my mindset into the artist's mindset. So like I said, I watch, I watch movies, I read books. And it, and as soon as I get some little inkling of an idea, I, I jot it down and then go on and do something else. Had you been thinking about, like, do you walk around jotting notes to yourself? Do you notice stuff and think like when, when you notice something about the world, when you hear a story about a bar fight or about a place closing or uh, about someone leaving someone else, do you yeah. do you just like kind of absorb it and then move on? Because um, some people, some artists do, knowing, well, when I need it, it'll be there. Oh, or that's, you, that's dangerous. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's super I've dangerous. I've lost so many songs thinking that way. So yeah, I, I try so what do to you do. Well, I have I try to have the dif- discipline throughout the year, no matter if I'm writing or not to jot down any of those little turns of phrase or stories I read about or something that I'm going through or someone I know is going through and just dot, jot down the tiniest little idea um, throughout the year. And then when I get down onto these little retreats, hopefully I have a little list of ideas to play with and, you know, smash them together or, or build on them. Or, you know, I usually work just to I work uh, – I work to get just a little bit of progress on each idea and then move on to something else. I don't like concentrate. I don't like oh, trying so you to don't finish, finish a song right away. No, no. Typically, if I'm halfway through the process, I might have, you know, four or five songs that are fleshed out but not done and four or five that are just ideas that I'm still poking away at and four or five that, you know, are, you know, just various states of completion that I just kind of play round robin with them and go from one to the other. I don't want to get obsessed with one song. I, why? Because well, then it'll be in my head and I won't be able to think of anything else. <laughs> and you think that's bad? You've done that and it's bad? Yeah, then I can't start another song. Because you're in that loop. Yeah, I don't want to – I just want to – I feel like they're, they're crossword puzzles that are unfinished. And I, it's like speed dating, I guess. I don't know what that is really. But uh, I'll try to solve a few problems in one. Yes, success. Put it away. Go to the next one. Okay, what's wrong with this song? What's missing? All right, I need this. Work on that for a while. Uh, it's not working. Go to the next one. See what, see if I can fix this one up. Well, you're leaving wet, the Hemingway thing of leaving a wet edge on each of them too. So you know where to get. I don't know what that means. He talks about like at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. try to like leave a little wet edge where you know you can start the next day. Okay. So that you're not just like you don't gas out and finish Mm -hmm. a big section and then don't know what to do. Like leave something for you to grab the paint and. Yeah. You know, there's always so much rewriting. I do a lot of rewriting. I was thinking about broke down that song. Which started as a Rod Pikett song, right? Yeah. And um, the difference you made 
you know, he'll sometimes play the original version of it. I was watching that recently. And I think his first line was, Billy gave Sherry a band of gold. And your first line is, Shelly had a pawn shop band of gold, right? I think those, those, the first lines are the same as the second line that diverges. I think his next line is rougher than a Bible belt road. And my second line was yeah, sick full of dishes and a love grown cold. Yeah. I just watched his today. Yeah. And I think the first line even doesn't have pawn oh, shop. Really? I think you brought oh. pawn shop. Oh, maybe. Which, and I'm wondering if that kind of rewrite, it seems to me you did from just watching the evidence. And Rod, I'm sure Rod's going to listen to this. <laughs> Rod's song is great. And yeah. you guys have written um, Welding Burns together and Tiger Tom Dixon's together. That's, That's his. his song. That's his, yeah. Which is a, a really important song. Yeah. Uh, to you and mm. you, he wrote it. It's a great song, mm -hmm. but it's, I, I was thinking about this rewriting process and how you take those things and make them like something that makes sense to you. It's a very writerly eye that, that you're bringing to it darker, a darkened, a darkening you in a way. Yeah. That, that's how he and I write these days. And it's not in person. Actually broke down was written by sending cassette tapes back and forth through the mail. That song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my first first time I heard that was on a cassette, and I just changed like three lines and sent it back to him. And he goes, "Oh yeah, great," and we moved on. Um, Have you been writing together since you were kids? Uh, we had a garage band in 1981 called the Magic Rats. Magic yeah, Rats Springsteen. Yeah. Machine, yeah, and that we were 16, and we just uh, we played a couple parties, but we didn't play out. And then we had uh, we, we we weren't writing yet; we were just a cover band. But I think we, we started writing pretty soon after that. I think early 90s, probably. When did you start thinking of yourself as someone who saw the world, like through a writer's eye? Um, you know, one revelation I had was at Tufts, actually. My freshman English class, uh, mandatory English that I didn't want to take. Was it Jonathan I, Wilson's class? No, his name was Morse Hamilton. Did you come across him? No, and I was an English major. Oh, really? Wow. No, so, Jay Cantor, oh, yeah. Lee Edelman. Oh, Lee, yeah. I had a few of his classes. Man. Rana Johnson. Did you ever take Rana? I don't know Rana. No. Marie Howe. Mary Carr was there when we were there, the legendary oh, Mary right. Carr. Yeah. Oh. Oh, sorry. So you were in a class with some hack professor. I don't know. <laughs> no, you were in a Morris, Morris Hamilton, just, uh, he, he just, uh, when he marked up my first essay, it, he, he wrote in red ink and, and green ink. You know, the bad stuff in red, the good stuff in green. Uh, and I don't remember what it was. It was some, I think his first advice was, I want you to write a story and embarrass yourself. And that was very freeing, you know. Oh, and, yeah. and I did. Yeah. And I, and I wrote a song that made me look bad, you know, that made me look pathetic. A song or your story? <laughs> I'm sorry, a story, a, a short story. Um, and he, he just, something in his uh, notes was just something about you have an inimitable style, you know, just after looking at one little oh, first nice. semester freshman thing. He was no hack, this professor. No, in fact, he, 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 he said, was a, a seer. He, he he planted a seed in me saying, you know, you really got something here, kid. And uh, I hadn't, I didn't really think of that. Before. Had it been a secret thing in your head before that or not? Well, I had like wanted to write songs, but I, I didn't know how to get started and I, Wrote a couple of crappy little things in high school, maybe, or fin I didn't even finish them. But that just gave me enough confidence to to pursue 
it just gave me enough confidence for in the ensuing art, uh, essays, the assignments in that class to, to, to just express myself, I guess, or to just to, you know, not, to, not to be afraid to write. What an amazing thing, how important the little tiny things we say to each other mm. can be. Yeah. And, you know, you, you don't realize you can, you can, you have the opportunity to give gifts to people all the time. Mm. And most of us don't do it. We don't think about it. But like that guy gave you a, a, a lifelong, a lifelong gift by yeah. taking the time yeah. to actually read it mm-hmm. and apprehend you. Yeah. Uh, and, and did you, that's amazing. He that's said, to, beautiful. It was my favorite professor. He said to me, I was walking across the campus with him one time and he, he ran into a friend who I didn't know. And he introduced me by saying to his friend, this man has the improbable name of Slade Cleaves. <laughs> it's my favorite introduction ever. That's fantastic. <laughs> uh, how did you fit in there? No, I can't. Because as I say, we were there at the same no, time. No, and I can't. It's hard to picture you in, with that assemblage of people. I felt very out of place, and I rebelled against it a little bit too. How? Was, oh, you know, I wore leather pants <laughs> and biker boots, and did you play trying out? Trying to be a tough guy. Uh, not until. Um, let's see. I, I was in a new wave band my first year with some guys from Maine. We played down in, at the Rat a couple of times. It never really went the anywhere. Rat Scholar. Yeah, yeah. In Boston, I saw the DBs there. Oh, Peter wow. Holsapple uh, and the DBs with Chris Damian, like when they just got uh, back together. It was uh, amazing. Yeah, uh, just amazing thing to see. So you yeah. played at the Rat. That's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, I was the keyboard player then. I didn't switch to the guitar until I went to Ireland for a junior year abroad. And I found myself in Ireland with a guitar and a bunch of cassettes and <laughs> an ex-girlfriend who I had planned the trip with, but we broke up on the plane on the way over pretty much. Uh, and, you know, no TV and no car, and no phone and no job, and no family, and no friends. I what just, were you studying? Uh, I think English and I, I think in, in Ireland I switched over to philosophy, actually. I was just into those classes more. So you had your guitar and some cassettes. Yeah, and a lot of time in my hands. And I was exploring the city, and I saw a couple of buskers, and I just thought, that's what I want to do. You know, that's how I'm going to learn my craft. I thought, I'm too shy to subject myself to a captive audience in a room, like an open mic. I wasn't ready for that even. I thought, if I sing on the street, people can just walk by, and I know I'm going to be terrible at first, because when you're do something the first time. You're not any good at it. I just accepted that and thought, I'm going to sing on the streets of Cork, Ireland. And I started learning songs. I learned a song a day for about a month. And then uh, I went out on the streets of Cork and sang my little broken heart out. You learned a song a day. Mm. You mean like a Bruce song or a U2 song? Yeah, Bruce and U2 and Credence and Buddy Holly and Hank Williams and Chuck Berry. And And uh, you made yourself a good guitar. That was, you like made yourself a guitar player. Ah, I was never a guitar player, but I could play the chords and sing. I, I was making myself a singer. I, I had been a guitar, I had been a keyboard player and sang a couple songs, but you know, I wanted to be the singer songwriter with a guitar. So that idea, when did that idea start servicing Slade? Where you were like, uh, I, I think I can, I want to do this. Cause you said when you were there, you, you said you were not only realized, well, this is what I want to be. So I mean, when did, when did the, this is what I want to be start whisper? When did you start whispering that to yourself? Uh, I think it was a couple of years prior to that. And um, like I said, I was playing keyboards in bands and just learning how to play guitar. Uh, but you know what? It was when I heard uh, 
Mr. State Trooper on the radio when Nebraska was coming out. Of course, out. yeah. And I just thought, wow, you can have that effect. You can blow people away with just a guitar and a voice. And you don't need a band. You don't need a Hammond B3 organ, and you don't need a PA system. And you don't need anything. You just need a guitar and a voice. Oh, God, that album was so important to me. Yeah, me too. I just I learned every single song off that. I've played it a couple times front to back when I was a street singer. Just for fun. You did? Yeah. I played the whole thing just for my own, for my own amusement. <laughs> I've gone through a period of time where every song on that album was my favorite song mm. for a moment in mm. the world. Where, mm. and it's odd, like our life experiences are so different. But that album, again, it's another thing if people don't know Nebraska. And a lot of people now don't. You know, it's amazing what people don't know. Mm. Um, I spent a really sad year. Of my, my sophomore year at Tufts was brutal, terrible. And uh, I had this old jeep cj7 uh that was busted up and it was very cold as you remember in mm. boston and a uh, window was broken and i never didn't get it fixed which was really dumb like my dad was a successful person he would have given me the money to get it fixed i was like too sad and lazy to get it fixed if i'd known you i would have taken you to the junkyard to yeah you're gonna free. you're gonna help me <laughs> yeah but instead i went around with it and i had two cassettes and mm -hmm. I, they were the, in the car i had a lot of cassettes back but the only two cassettes in the car were fables of the reconstruction which is a very sad album and Nebraska. And I just listened to it over and over. So we were listening to that album at the same time for mm. sure. So you yeah. heard that and you thought, Oh, I can, I thought I need to learn how to play guitar enough to be able to do this. And and I need to write these songs that are this moving, that this, that are this haunting, um, that just strike people, you know? Yeah. I heard you say something on Joe Pug's podcast and I read, you said it somewhere too. Um, I love Joe Pug's podcast. I'm going to plug it. He talks to songwriters and he's really good at it. He's a great songwriter and he gets really good songwriters on. His James McMurtry inter interviews. Fascinating because that's not a guy who likes to open his mouth. <laughs> and he actually got him to that's talk. A, that's a coup. <laughs> it's Damn. an amazing thing. I mean, it's about, you know, killing the fishing and hunting and <laughs> oh, whatever, but it's, you know, he got him there. Um, but you said it's not my job to tell you how I feel. It's my job to tell you how you feel. You said that in an interview I read, but you said something similar on there and I'm not what I want to ask you to talk more about it is because I'm not sure I agree. Like I think what I think the truer that statement might be is I think you want to make me feel by telling me how you feel or what you see, or can you articulate it? Talk, yeah. talk about it a little. Well, uh, I'm trying to remember when I came across that, um, that philosophy. I, I think it was in those formative years when I was, making my first records by myself or maybe my first rounder record and just starting to, well, because I was failing so badly, just going into debt and not building an audience. And I just had to really reevaluate and say, well, you know, why aren't people buying what I'm selling? You know? And I just realized that I had to, I just had to move people. I had to affect people. And somehow I came upon the idea that it's not just my job to express myself. It's my job to articulate what you're going through. That's how I'm going to get people to love my songs. Um, so that 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 still is is sort of my guiding. Even by principle. watching and trying to understand, you're, you're, are you talking about learning to be empathetic enough to to reach across the person, or are you saying you're you're not actually uh, when you're telling a story like Drinking Days, it doesn't matter to you. If you've been at the broken spoke, it doesn't matter to you if you've been at that pool table, if you've seen that fight or participated in it. All that matters 
is you rendering it in a way that we believe it? Yeah, uh, that's part of it. I mean, when I wrote Horseshoe Lounge, I'd never set foot in the Horseshoe Lounge, I'm embarrassed to say. Uh, but I, I guess it's- I always think this train day is about that place all. You know, oh, it's sort all, of the sequel. About the sense yeah. they're, that they're connected, those <laughs> yeah, songs. Yeah, sort of are. Yeah, it's the sequel. Um, I, I guess it, it's, I feel like I've been through enough in my life. I know what people go through. Um, but I don't, I don't have to express what I went through to you. I want to express what people go through in a way that you recognize. And that's what I mean by that, that it's my job to tell me how you feel. It's not, that sounds a little arrogant. It's my job to articulate what you're going through, what we all go through. Right. What we all go through. Yeah. But do you feel like you can write about emotions you haven't felt? Well, uh, you know, I've felt them all. I'm a human, you know, I'm 52 years old. I've been, been up and down. <laughs> yes. Know? And that's, what I, I mean, to me, it feels like that's what you're, you know, I think of someone like a Max Martin or something trying to craft the song that's going to make the girls dance <laughs> as like someone saying, I'm not, this isn't what I'm about. It's what, and I don't know him. He may be a beautiful guy. And, when I think of someone who goes around the world with a guitar telling these personal stories, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, it's part of your gift is I think it'd be very hard to write one good year without having, without feeling like, boy, I hope I can turn something around for myself. Yeah. Um, but that song started as a, a tribute to a friend who was lost his job and then lost his wife and two kids and, uh, Went from living in a nice house to living in an apartment and eating spaghetti out of a jar. I mean, sure. this guy who really had a bunch really? of hard knocks. Right. And that was my friend. And I wanted to write a song to cheer him up. Not really, but no. Uh, that but was yes, the you mean you wanted to write a song to honor him, to honor the thing he was going through. Yeah, yeah. It, it was sort of a – and I've written a few songs like that. Brothers going through hard times, you know, just a song of solace, a song of, uh, hey, buddy, I, I know this is tough you're going through and – we all go through tough times. We're all in this together. Yeah, I mean, there's a line on the new album, and I think I wrote it down right, um, but I wrote it down from memory, so I might have written it down because there's no lyric sheet. I might have gotten it wrong, but these are the more I read, the dumber I am, the more <laughs> mo the, right, the more money I make, the more they say I need. Yeah. What's the line? Yeah, that's right. I think that's right? Did. Yeah. And I was like, this combination of like self-deprecation mixed in with the knowledge we live in a, a crooked world is so vintage, this worldview that it seems you've arrived at. Uh, yeah, I guess it's, it's becoming a little more, um, uh, is it defeated? That's not quite defeated. No, it's, it's not defiant. defeated because it's, it's defiant. And it's yeah. also like, um, you're, you're no longer falling for it. Yeah, you know yeah. that, you know that the man is saying <laughs> it to you in a, in a way, right? I know my place. Yeah. yeah I wrote this down that like, um, uh, a guy or a woman, but often in your songs, it's a guy, the point of view often, not always. Um, I wrote that a man in a Slade Cleave song seems to have some rough understanding of his own weaknesses and strengths, but is often in a world in which he doesn't quite fit. Um, and he doesn't, he doesn't want to hit anyone, but sometimes someone needs to get hit. And it, it feels to me like that's the balance that these songs are often trying to. Yeah. It just comes down to struggle. You know, we all struggle and we all have our little brief moments of of success and, and happiness but life is a struggle um and where do you look for like where do you look for joy now because i agree with you i agree with everything I and mean, i 
I agree with all this and it's why your music resonates so deeply for me. Um, I know the ephemeral, you know, the ephemerality of, uh, the moments of, uh, joy and, and the sort of how you have to try to go deeper for connection. Um, so where do you look for clearly Karen gives you it? Is it the relationship with your audience? Does that matter? Is it just the moments of the songs showing up? Like what, what gives you moments of lift in, in the course of your day or week or month? Uh, well, figuring out a song, of course, that's one of the best, best things ever. You understand that as a creative person, when you, when you figure it out and you know, it's good, you know, you put something in, in, new into the world. That's, that's pretty great stuff. Um, and when Karen and I can can sort of look at the fruits of our labor and relax a little bit and enjoy it, that's wonderful. I have nieces and nephews who I love dearly that I don't get to see enough, but when I see them, it's just magical. You know, they're cool kids. Uh, and we have this cabin in Maine that I get away to where just uh, commune with uh, the woods and the river and up in Maine and, and the bugs. <laughs> what brought you to Texas from Maine since you get all that out of Maine? Uh, just, uh, it was purely, uh, Austin's, uh, what was it? It was, uh, South by Southwest. It was, I read about South by in the Rolling Stone magazine and they called it heaven with a Texas zip code. I remember this is probably 1991 or maybe 90. And I'd been in Maine for a couple of years, played with a cool little band called the Moxie Men, kind of a alt country band before the term existed. Um, high energy acoustic rock country band. Uh, but I just knew that I couldn't build a career out of Portland. I had to find a music town and I'm a small town guy. New York was intimidating and I'd gone to school in Boston. It was kind of done with Boston for a while. Uh, LA was too big and Seattle was too wet and <laughs> Minneapolis was too cold and Athens was kind of played out and Nashville was too commercial and just everything pointed to Austin. And, you know, I'd seen, I think I saw Joe Ely play on a TV show. Right. Right around that time, and I thought, that's that's my model. That's what I want to do. I want to go there and open for Joe Ely and learn how to do it from him. And that's what I did. And you did it. Yeah. You did that thing. Mm -hmm. And did you get to ever play with Guy or Towns or any of those people? Steve Earle? Uh, Guy. I was I was on the same booking agent with Guy for a little while. So I got to do a bunch of shows with him. Yeah. And did his music mean anything to you? Oh, yeah. Were you sad? Of course. He wasn't – you know, I didn't really discover him until I had moved to – to Texas. So he wasn't uh, really, like, yeah, he wasn't sort of in my foundation, but obviously he became, you know, a guy to model myself after once I started building my career. Who was in the foundation other than Bruce for you at the beginning? Um, I guess that when Nebraska came out, I remember reading Rolling Stone again, um, about Bruce's influences for that. And he talked about going back to the sort of the American songbook and, and Hank Williams and Woody Guthrie and, Something just clicked, and I, I literally walked up to the attic and got my dad's Hank Williams records that he put away up there that I remember listening to when I was three or four. I mean, I, I was playing, I was playing records, and it was playing Hank Williams and Johnny Cash and the Beatles when I was three, four, five years old, and you know, I loved music. I mean, I was fascinated with that, and music was just my biggest thing. And all through grade school, and I took piano lessons. Um, and like I said, as as a junior high kid, you know, I had to find my own music. So it was Springsteen and Tom Petty and Jay Giles Band. And and like I said, I did, kind of rediscovered all that original music I had as a baby. Through Nebraska. That yeah, was the prism through which you got to it. Yeah. And, I, I understand that completely. 
And then that would then lead you sort of secondarily. Then I can see in Austin, you hear Guy and you hear Towns because it's in the water. I mean, it's just mm. a, a part of part of the culture there. Yeah, the culture there. These great songwriters. Yeah, I first heard Guy in a conscious way around 1989, and I remember just not. A, I had never heard Old Number One. I couldn't believe I'd never, I'd never heard it. It was just kind of like. Open me up like you to a whole different world. He's in Nashville's too commercial. Then have you? I always wonder this about songwriters, particularly about someone like you, who's such an accomplished songwriter. Do you ever do the Nashville go around songwriting thing? Meet somebody, write for three hours. No, I've never done that. I I went there twenty some odd years ago. Well, maybe twenty years ago. I I went a few times and had connections and went to publishers' offices and. You know, I heard the same thing every time. Oh, love it, but don't know what to do with it. You know, I'm sure everybody hears that. For and how come you never wanted to do the, na- the like the the co-write Nashville thing? Like, bring your skill. You mean you're you know, making a face? Like, <laughs> it, it's almost like uh, I asked you to drink Ipecac or something. What? What? I, it's just so very foreign to me. I, I've even when I do that with friends, it doesn't work. It's worked a couple times, but when Picot and I would first get together, we we'd sit in a room with a legal pad and. You know, do the Seinfeld thing. Okay, we need something here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, right. uh, and we actually we got a couple of songs that way. But I work much better passing things back, passing things back and forth on email because uh, the pressure's not there. You just you work at it at your leisure, and you, you, there's no, uh, you know, you're not worried about being wrong or not. I don't know. It's just you just like you're an, uh, someone who likes to work alone. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I work at my own pace. I'm a slow thinker. It takes me a long time. I'm, I'm not. I'm not good at I'm not good at interviews. I'm not good at back and forth. Uh, I think of the best thing to say 20 minutes later. So I mean, we all do. By yeah. the way, I don't feel uh, bad about that. And then I'll I only have a couple more things I want to I want to ask. One is, do you um? People ask me this question, and I, so one, how many do you write to get one that's a keeper? And then, do you know the difference right away? Can you tell? Like you said with "Cry," you knew that was a special song. Mm. In general, do you know the difference? I know when it's in process. I mean, I know uh, when I'm working on a song, uh, I have hope <laughs> in every song for a certain amount of time. And I give up hope on some and put them in a junkyard pile and I use them for parts. You know, I don't throw anything away. Sure. And I've successfully. Yeah. No, I think uh, most writers are snout to tell. <laughs> you're, exactly. You're, we're yeah. all like. <laughs> don't throw anything away. But I do throw out. I put songs in the junkyard pile and move on. But sometimes, sometimes I don't know until they're totally complete. And sometimes I, sometimes I have an idea for a song. I know it's not going to be a good song, but I, I finish it anyway for the exercise of it. I've done that a couple times. And then do they end up anywhere? No, they just go in the junkyard pile. Do you ever get surprised you play a new song for an audience and suddenly it comes to life in a different way? Or do you know ahead no. of time, this will work, this won't work? No, it's kind of the other way. Sometimes I think, this song is just going to oh, no. rally people. And, and then just, nothing? Nah, yeah. Even, you know what? Even broke down. Before that got on the radio, that song didn't do much live. Isn't that weird? I mean. Well, it's a dense story. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a, it's, I mean, I would think people would have, uh, it would have made sense to people. Probably dep- you weren't playing probably for the right audiences then. Yeah, maybe. But then obviously as soon as it got on the radio, people were like, what the hell is this? Right. They had to go find it. As I hope people will hear this um and go find you and and your music man uh it's just um 
you know, you don't say this stuff yourself, but you've, you've succeeded in doing the thing that you try to do, which is, uh, your music has told me how I feel for 17 years now. Um, you know, there's never a time that I don't have it handy to listen to. And, uh, a new album of yours coming out means a great deal to me. I've, it's been really bothered me that I haven't found a spot for one of your songs in billions, but I don't want it to be a throwaway when it happens. <laughs> I want it to have a nice, like I want it to be set up and proper and something that people will be able to really grab onto. And uh, I'm, if we get to keep making the show after the next season or during the next season, I'm going to do everything I can to make that happen. Um, before you split, would you, first of all, the album, the new album is called Ghost on the car radio on the car radio and um which is interesting that is what nebraska felt like mm -hmm. ghost on the car radio mm -hmm. our state trooper in particular feels mm -hmm. like that uh and uh i'm wondering if you'll, you'll play us uh one more song i can do that all right that's great uh what, what do you want to play uh we talked about doing already gone maybe great love it that's from the new album ghost on the car radio which is coming out what date slate uh, pre-sales June 1st, street date is June 23rd. Great. So it'll be out really soon, like within a week of this coming out. Pre-order it, stream it, find it, support Slade Cleaves. Uh, I feel like I, I was a bit jumbled up because I am talking to my favorite songwriters of so many things that I, I wanted to ask. But the most important thing I can accomplish with this, I, I really make a whole podcast and an advertisement. But in my mind, this whole thing is an advertisement for Slade Cleaves and for his, uh, new album, Ghost in the Car Radio. So. Go buy the old stuff so you can get ready for the new one. And listen now, Slade's going to play us uh, a song already gone off the new album, Ghost in the Car Radio. Young love breaks like a wave on the shoreline, a rolling crash and it's gone. Swirling around and around in the chaos, gathering strength just to move on. Time and again we're crushed and we're battered Playing the fool's part again Over and over we try and we fail To figure out this game we're all in Time's running out and you can't help believing But here you are now at the end of the song Down fall the tears when you feel the silence When you finally that you're already gone You're already gone One more town, one more job, another chance now I'm down to muscle and nerve May not have gotten all that I dreamed of Pretty sure I got what I deserve Through the years you grasp and you hold on dream that won't die only to watch it recede along with all the garbage gone out with the tide time's running out and you can't help believing but here you are now at the end of the song down for the tears when you feel the silence when you finally know that you're already gone you're already gone Heard an old ghost in the car radio Under a diamond sky 
Sign along as the wheels beneath me roll Cast my troubles out into the night Got no option to turn back now As I ponder forgiveness and sin Feel the weight lift up off my shoulders Feel some kind of mercy in the wind Time's running out and you can't help believing But here you are now at the end of the song Down fall the tears when you feel the silence When you finally but you're already gone You're already gone Yeah, Slade Cleaves on his father's old guitar. Now, you were just saying... My dad bought this guitar in 1965 when it was brand new. Mm-hmm. And And when did you take possession of it? I borrowed it from him and... 1989, and he passed away last year, so I guess it's mine now. <laughs> I guess it is. I'm sorry he passed away. It's uh, You can see all the life that's uh, been on that guitar. And uh, actually, it reminds me of that Guy Clark song where he talks about that, that Lyle Lovett sings, where he says the guitar has been around the the world three, four, step inside this house, mm. this guitar that's traversed the country a bunch of times and has nicks on it. And like yours, you can tell this is a guitar that, a lot of great songs are, have come out of and are still in. It's, uh, we've been through a lot together. <laughs> Good. Well, I hope there's a lot more. Thanks again, Slade. Thank you. All right. You can find Slade on social media. He's not on there a lot, but you can find him on Twitter. You can find me at Brian Koppelman. You can email me, themomentbk at gmail.com. I, I can't promise you I'll respond, but I, I read everything. Thanks for listening.